Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 1, 1 through 11. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. It's my uh, pleasure to be bringing to you the Word of God this morning. First off, I'm just thankful you are here and not in a ditch somewhere. There's many of you that uh, maybe you hit a ditch and you got yourself out. I've heard many stories this morning. I know it was a little sketchy on the roads, uh, but I'm glad you're here. And you can see Beside me, but next to me or whatever, we're beginning a new Bible study and sermon series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, you might be wondering, why are we talking about Ezra and Nehemiah? Those are two separate books, and it's going to take us a while to get through them. Well, we're studying these books together because more than likely, originally, they were actually one book. Um, the, the some of the oldest Hebrew scriptures have them together in one. The Hebrew Bible had them as one book until the 15th century. And they're really kind of, think of it like a telescope lenses you, that you look through. They're kind of like that. They're, they're telling one narrative together from two different points of view. Just to make it really simple, Ezra is talking about rebuilding a temple. And Nehemiah is talking about rebuilding the city walls and the city itself. And we're going to get into all the details, and there's, some, there's some, some stuff that we need to understand. But before we do all of that, I just want to ask us this morning, I'm going to talk about it. Why are we studying a book of the Bible that is roughly 2,500 years old? Why are we studying these old, ancient books? Well, at least three reasons. Number one, God's Word in the New Testament tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, this is what God doesn't waste words. 
right? If, he, if we're going to be complete and equipped for everything God has called us to do, we need to have a thorough understanding of all of God's words, not just the easy parts, not just the New Testament, not just the Apostle Paul, not just Jesus, right? God included Ezra and Nehemiah for our edification, for our training, for our correction. So we need to go back and look at these little books of Ezra and Nehemiah and see what God has for us. Second, another reason we are studying these books is because history matters. History, we obviously didn't have any history teachers in the room this morning because I should have heard some amens from that. But history matters. If you don't have an accurate understanding of history, and especially biblical history, you are likely going to misinterpret the present and not know what God requires of you in your own cultural moment. Um, in, the, in the famous kind of dystopian novel, 1984, they, George Orwell makes a statement in there. He says that those who don't, basically those who control history control the future. And those who control the present control history. And so for us, we need to make sure we're not controlled by what's being taught in our current day and age. We need to actually have God's understanding of history. Third, the third reason why we want to study these books is because they testify to the sovereignty of God over the kingdoms of men. And they're able to strengthen our faith when we walk through times of uncertainty. Many of us can testify that we're going through, in our own cultural moment right now, great times of uncertainty. It seems like there are almost two nations forming in our own nation. And uh, we're in a, in a time of uncertainty. So when we go back and we study similar experiences of other kingdoms, and, the, and, and we can learn, okay, how did they respond to that? What did God do? And that can give us faith to live out, uh, to live faithfully in our own cultural moment. Now, last week, someone texted me, and this is kind of common today. They say, how can you believe in a book that is over 2,000 years old? It was written by more than 40, 40 authors, 66 different books over a period of 1,500 years. Someone else said this past week, they, they wrote it on a little post. How can you believe in a book that was written by people who were almost cavemen? This line of reasoning is actually used all the time today. It's on YouTube, it's on TikTok, and especially on secular college campuses. It's a fallacy. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. To assume that we are so much smarter today just because it's today. Just because we're modern. To assume that something is better just because it's newer. If you think that we're smart, and you know, back then, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, they were all idiots. Go read the early church fathers. Go read John Calvin. You won't walk away going, yep, I'm a lot smarter than I thought I was. You won't, I promise you, right? Now listen, I have many good reasons for believing that the Bible is divinely inspired, infallible, in the inerrant word of God, I have a lot of reasons. One, it makes the most sense of the world we live in. Two, it makes the most sense of the internal struggle of the human experience. Three, it makes the most sense of any other religion or worldview that tries to explain everything that's out there today. 
forth. The message is also, the message of all those 66 different books is, is internally consistent. It doesn't contradict itself. And lastly, Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, testified that the Old Testament too was the divinely inspired Word of God. Actually, I'm going to add one more. And the Spirit of God testifies to my spirit when I read it. I read it, and the Spirit of God says, you know what? This is true. The Spirit, it, and it speaks to the Spirit within me. Now, those are just a few of my reasons. I have many more. Some of them are actually historical. There are many people who say things like, the Bible is just a book of myths. You can't take it literally, can you? They say things like, there's no evidence that proves that the events described in the Bible actually happened. Now, I'm going to say, that statement is just categorically false. It is absolutely not true. There have been hundreds, if not thousands, of archaeological discoveries that have confirmed the biblical accounts. Today, I get to show you one of those. But before I do, let me pray for us, and then we're going to get into our text this morning. Father, first off, we just thank you for keeping us safe. We thank you for getting us here this morning. We thank you for the worship team and the worship that was sung and played and the liturgy that helps shape our mind and shape our thinking. We thank you for the way that you've gone before us. We thank you for the story that you've told in generations past. And we pray that we would learn from it, that it would inform our faith today. Father, we turn from our own chronological snobbery and we say, Lord, we need your word to teach us. We need you to instruct us. So we humble ourselves before your, your word this morning. And we say, Father, please speak. Bring light into our darkness. God, I pray that you would help me, that you would hide me behind your word, that your people would hear your voice and not just mine. I pray that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. I pray that it would be all of you and none of me, that you would bring a great blessing to your people as you feed your sheep. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Well, you can open up your Bibles to Ezra or probably, you know, table of contents and then find Ezra and then we can get to Ezra or flip. That's what's so good about an app, right? You just flip to it. It's pretty easy. So we're going to start in the book. We're going to go to Ezra. We're going to read 1 through 11. But first, we're going to start Ezra chapter 1. Here we go. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Okay, the first thing that we need to do today is get ourselves historically situated. Where are we at here in the story and what is going on? The book of Ezra begins in the year 538 BC. And it picks up the story right where 2nd 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles has left off. Second Chronicles literally ends with this proclamation from Cyrus. So if you flipped your Bible over one page, you're going to see in verses 22 uh, through 25, literally the same proclamation. So it, 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 Second Chronicles ends with the proclamation. Ezra begins with that proclamation. It's like a Netflix series that you're watching, right? You're picking it up one episode after another. And when you start that next episode, it gives you that 10 second, 20 second, 30 second clip that most of us try to skip from the last, either last season or from the last few episodes, right? That's what's going on here in the book of Ezra. 
It wants to remind you this new book isn't a new story. It's just a new chapter in the story, right? This is, the Bible is one big story. Now, I doubt that many of us, if I just say that, we're like, oh yeah, picking right up where Second Chronicles left off. Go ahead, Justin. I know, I know exactly where that is, right? Most of us, we probably, many of us have probably read 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, but we probably don't have that uh, in our memory right now. It's probably not fresh in our mind. So let me catch us up and get us all on the same page. The sovereign God of everything, Yahweh, has graciously chosen to reveal himself to a small group of people. And he has called them out of darkness into light and he calls them his own. He said, you are not a people, but now you are my people. We know it went through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down through Moses. They're in Egypt. He calls them out of that. This group of people, they go by three different names, the Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites. He rescued them out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And Egypt at that time was the most powerful nation on the planet. He then As he brought them out of Egypt, he gives them the Ten Commandments and the laws of God that were to direct their ethics and their morality. It was to direct their religious life and their worship, and it was to direct their civic life. He calls them into his own nation. God then led them into a promised land where they were to live like his free people under his law, and they were to reject the ways of the nations around them. The nations around them were all pagan, doing all kind of things like child sacrifice and all kind of things that the pagan nations did. And God consistently said, you can't live like them. My ways are not their ways. You've got to live as my holy people. God is holy. He calls them to live as his holy, distinct people. Well, they don't do a very good job of that. A lot of conflict, a lot of problems, a lot of difficulty. And eventually these people, they look at other nations and they go, these nations around us have kings. We want a king. God says, well, it's not going to go well for you if you want a king, but I'll give you what you want and I'll give you a king. Well, for the next 1,000 years, the nation of Israel rose and fell based upon the spiritual health of their king. When the king worshipped God and obeyed his commandments, things went well and they prospered. Seen under Solomon. You actually get this picture in Solomon himself. But when the king worshipped other gods and ignored the real God and disobeyed his laws, specifically for Solomon, he married a bunch of foreign women and the, the women literally turned his heart towards their gods. Things went horrible. Things went really bad and the nation brought upon themselves the judgment of God. Well, here's what God said to his people at kind of at the end of this time of this ebb and flow of of the kings and of the nations, as they were rebelling from him, they they wanted to do what was right in their own eyes and not obey God. God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 25 of his own book, and he says this, quote, it's kind of long, so it'll be up on the screen. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Pause. We're going to pause right there. 
God's saying, my nation has abandoned me and has abandoned my ways. So I'm going outside of the kingdom to the Babylonian empire, who they were fully pagan, worshiped all kinds of different gods. And God's saying, I'm going to call Nebuchadnezzar my servant because I'm going to use him, a pagan nation who's actually worse than my own nation, to punish and discipline my people for abandoning me. In one sense, those people up there, they, know what, they don't know what they're doing is wrong because I've never revealed myself to them, but I'm going to use them to punish you because you know better, okay? Prophet Jeremiah is prophesying that this is going to happen. Now, what do you think God's people did? Thank you, thank you, Jeremiah, for that good and positive and uplifting word. That helps me live my day-to-day life. No, they hated him. They wanted to kill him. He's called the weeping prophet because he has an awful job to declare God's word to hard-hearted people that didn't want to hear it. And they just went, you are off your rocker, bro. You're a little too extreme. Things aren't that bad. Calm down. God hasn't abandoned us in a thousand years. He's not going to do it now. Chill out. Right? Keep reading. This is what he says. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction. Talking about his own people. And make them a horror a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness. So the singing and the gladness of his people will no longer be heard. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I've uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. That's Jeremiah 25, 8 through 14. So here's what's going on. God's looking at his people. He's saying, he's, now this is kind of big. He's saying this, you're disobeying me. You've abandoned me. You've abandoned my law. So I'm going to take the Babylonians, use them as my people to come in and conquer you. And I'm going to allow them to conquer you and rule you for 70 years. But then what I'm going to do is take this, another nation and bring them in to conquer the Babylonians. This is God's prophecy to his people. Well, in 620 BC, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, attacked Jerusalem. Now, Nebuchadnezzar threatened the city for more than 15 years. But in 505 BC, he sacked the city and he carried off 10,000 of its best and brightest, including Daniel. If you were in the men's Bible study, we went through Daniel, that's what happens. Daniel's part of those exiles that get brought out of, of Israel and carried off into Babylon. Now, Jerusalem managed to resist. They, were, they kept fighting and fighting and fighting the Babylonian army, 
But eventually they were completely overrun. And by 587 BC, the night before the city's final collapse, after an 18-month siege where they were driven to the brink of starvation. So Babylon had surrounded them for 18 months and they were starving to death. Eventually they knew they were going to fall. So Zedekiah, the kingdom's final king, tried to run away with his two sons. He tried to sneak out and get away from the Babylonian army. Well, he was captured outside the city of Jericho and taken 200 miles to Riblah in Syria. There he was made to watch the execution of his two sons. This was the last thing he would ever see as his captors then gouged out his eyes. 2 Kings 25, 7. Zedekiah was then marched off to Babylon, the final king, never to be heard from again. This was the end of Israel's monarchy. A month later, Nebuchadnezzar came back to destroy the entire city of Jerusalem. The nation of Israel had been defeated and Jerusalem, the center of Israel's worship and the center of Israel's kingdom had been completely destroyed just as God had told them it would through the prophet Jeremiah. That was exactly what Jeremiah said. I'm going to bring this nation. I'm going to bring in Nebuchadnezzar and I'm going to destroy you. And the sound of singing and the sound of mirth is no longer going to be heard in your ears. Now, if you go and read Daniel, you get this kind of from, the, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. Daniel is in the inner ring of, of the Babylonian court and he's getting to see how Nebuchadnezzar is processing this whole thing. And Nebuchadnezzar totally misses the point. Nebuchadnezzar goes, man, I am awesome. I am just ruling the kingdoms of men. And just look what my hands have done. He concluded that it was his might and his power and his dominance. And it was all a result of his own wisdom. So the Lord continued to fulfill that prophecy of Jeremiah. And then brought the nation of Persia in to destroy Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, just like the prophecy in the book of Jeremiah had foretold. He said, after 70 years, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity. And how was God going to do that? Well, he told his people exactly how he was going to do that 200 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah. Here's Isaiah 44, verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd? Remember how he, Jeremiah spoke of Nebuchadnezzar as God's servant, even though he was pagan. Well, here we have a Persian king who's also pagan, who doesn't even exist yet, 200 years before he even arrives on the scene. And God calls him my shepherd. Why? He shall fulfill my purpose saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places." 
I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. So 200 years before this happens, God says, I'm going to drive out the Babylonians. I'm going to drive out Nebuchadnezzar with this guy named Cyrus of Persia. And I'm going to level, I'm going to clear the way for him. His success is going to become, come from me. So it was that here we are in the year 539 BC, Cyrus and the Persian Empire came against the Babylonians, came against Nebuchadnezzar and drove them out. And here the Babylonian Empire fell. Now, this is interesting to me. So here we are right in the middle of some of the most epic geopolitical battles in history. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, and then now the Greeks were gaining power and would soon threaten the Persian kingdom. This was all about 100 to 200 years before Alexander the Great. And God is using, now this is interesting because, you know, you, you, you grow up and you, if you get a public school education, you're, you're probably not going to learn too much about the history of Israel. You're not going to learn too much about the history of this, this nation. You're going to learn a little bit about Egypt and a little bit about Babylon and probably a, a little bit about Persia. And you're going to learn, learn a, lot, a lot about you know, Greco-Roman civilization, but you're not going to learn. And those are the big players, right? Those are the big kingdoms, the big empires. But those big empires were, were actually not the main point. They weren't the main character on the stage. The main character on the stage of God's telling of history is this little nation of Israel that's going on here. And all these kingdoms are moving and conquering and doing, and God's plan is for this little bitty group of nobodies. And he's raising up one great leader and he's pulling down another and he's shifting the pieces all around the chessboard and nobody knows that he's doing it to preserve this little group of people that eventually the son of God is going to be born through. This is why we need to know our history, our biblical history. God is using these pagan empires to discipline his tiny nation for their rebellion from him and to bring about his intended purposes for them. So Cyrus conquers the Babylonian empire and look what happens. Let's go back to our text. Ezra verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now listen, early Jewish historian Josephus, he says that, but we don't have any other evidence, but this is from his historical record, that the prophecy of Jeremiah actually made its way to Cyrus, and Cyrus literally read, and as I, I mean the prophecy of Jeremiah and Isaiah, and Cyrus literally read his name in the scriptures, and was like, oh, oh, whoa, and that convicted him and convinced him God had a plan for him and that he needed to fulfill. Now, we don't have any biblical evidence of that. And actually, the scriptures here tell us that it's the spirit of the Lord that stirred him. That could have came through the word of God, but we don't know. But early Jewish historians said that he actually did, receive, did read the scriptures, and that's how he was convinced of it. <clears throat> Let's keep reading. The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
That's, see that? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So God stirs up Cyrus, a pagan king. This again is the fulfillment of another prophecy, Jeremiah. Uh-oh, here we go. We're about to get some context for that Bible verse you got on a coffee cup. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Where? Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Okay. I have plans for you to prosper you and to bless you and bring about. That wasn't about, you know, getting your master's degree, right? That wasn't about finding the one, all right? That wasn't about moving up in tax brackets. That was this people had been driven, had been carried off into Babylonian exile. They were there for 70 years and then Cyrus comes in and God is promising to bring them back and restore to them Jerusalem. The nation, the right worship of God. And if they seek him with all their heart, like they didn't do 70 years prior, they'd abandon God, then God would be near to them and God would bless them. Again, it's after darkness, light. They were in a dark season. God was promising to bring light to them. So how is God going to do this? God stirs up. God is spirit. Every single person has a spirit. God is a speaking spirit. God can speak to our spirit and he can stir it up. God stirs up the heart of Cyrus, fulfills both Isaiah's prophecy and Jeremiah's prophecy. And he's saying, I'm going to stir up this guy to do me a favor. Now, what is the favor? Let's keep reading. So that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Here's the favor. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." So God stirs up the heart of Cyrus. Now this is interesting. To, to, to take, he conquers this nation and he's saying, okay, 
All of you people here who belong to Israel, who, who came from Jerusalem, anyone who wants to, I want you to go back. The Lord, the sovereign God of the universe is actually calling me, now that I've conquered you, calling me to rebuild your house of worship. He wants a house back in Jerusalem. And so I'm sending you back to do that. Now, this is very similar to what God did with Pharaoh and what God spoke to Pharaoh in the Exodus. He said, let my people go, right? Let my people go so they could go and they could, be, they could rightly receive the word of God. They could rightly receive the commandments. They could rightly, rightly worship God. He says, let my people go back to Jerusalem and let them rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, this is interesting. If you're reading this book from a secular perspective, and a secular perspective is basically like, you, can't, you don't accept it with faith in the beginning. You say, prove it, prove it, prove it. You read this and you go, yeah, right. What pagan king would allow his conquered people to go back and rebuild their temple? Like that nation was a problem for them all the time because they say they serve the sovereign God who's above the kingdoms of men and above kings. So that, that just doesn't make sense. See, this, is, this can't be true. This can't happen. That's much of the, the, the critique of the Bible comes from that type of perspective. Oh, this can't be true. There's no way this is true. And for a long time, secular scholarship believed that, right? But this is one of those places where archaeology actually affirms what Scripture teaches. First off, you can go right now to visit Cyrus's tomb in the Fars province of Iran at the site of the ancient Persian city of Pasargadeh. I can't say that. Pasargadeh. Secondly, in 1879, a clay cylinder was found in the foundations of the Esagila, Esagila, an ancient temple of Marduk, Babylonian and Persian god. This cylinder is called the Cyrus Cylinder, and today it is housed in the British Museum in London. Here's a picture of it. That's it. That's the Cyrus Cylinder. Now, you can't really tell. That is an ancient Babylonian book, okay? It is a clay cylinder. It is written, all, that, all those notches in there, are Babylonian script, and it is a Babylonian account of the conquest of Babylon by Cyrus. Cyrus dictated that. That is an ancient archaeological evidence of his conquest of Babylon. And in it, Cyrus claims... You can go look at this at the, at the British Museum. You can look at it on, online. You can spin it around and look at it. It's awesome. In it, Cyrus claims, one of the things he claims to have done is to restore to the conquered people their temples and religious cults and to have returned their previously deported gods and people. Cyrus didn't just do this for Israel. He did it for all of the nations that were in Babylon that they had conquered. He let them go back and rebuild their temples and begin to worship their gods. Now, this is a Babylonian historical account that affirms exactly what Scripture teaches. Now, why did Cyrus do this? Well, we go back to the Bible and we learn why Cyrus did this. First off, Cyrus did this because God stirred up his spirit to do it. 
God wanted Cyrus to do this. So God spoke to Cyrus and God used Cyrus to give this edict to get his people where he wanted his people to be. But secondly, Cyrus is a pagan. And Cyrus did not believe in an ultimate sovereign God over all of the kingdoms of men who was transcendent and outside of creation. So more than likely, as a pagan, he didn't really care if they worshiped another God. He knew that if he let these conquered people, these subjugated people, worship their God, they would be easier to control and they would be easier to keep happy. Let them worship their God, their little tiny nation in this huge empire. Let them worship their God. That'll keep them quiet and that'll keep them happy because he had wars to fight against the Egyptians, which he, eventually, which he conquered pretty quickly. And then a huge war against the Greeks where he sent over 700,000 warriors to fight against him. So more than likely, we see two things happening in place. One, God's using him to, get, to bring about his purposes. And Cyrus is just using pagan thinking. All right, I'm going to keep the peace here, and I'm going to do this. But no matter what, this is a huge evidence of grace, that this pagan king showed mercy to God's people, and we should all be grateful for that. So what do we learn from this brief survey of biblical history here? First, I'm going to quote God speaking through Daniel. Quote, The Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he will. It's easy to look at this dark moment in Israel's history where they're being carried off into Babylon and they've spent, been there for nearly 70 years. And if you're there, you're, you're, you might hear the ringing of Jeremiah's voice in your ears. But more than likely, you're just going, God's abandoned us. There's no hope. And then we see Cyrus, God moves Cyrus in. And then all of a sudden this declaration, go back and rebuild. God is in control, even in the dark, even in the downturn, even in the brokenness, even in the rebellion. Second, God's word never fails. Joshua proclaimed 2145 of that book, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Proverbs 35, 30 verse 5 says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Now, every time, nearly every time, I talk about the sovereignty of God, people always assume that if God is sovereign and he's the one moving all of this geopolitical stuff around and even all the circumstances of my daily life, that he knows every leaf that falls to the ground, he knows every hair of mine that falls to the ground, he knows exactly when I'm going to live and exactly when I'm going to die. If God knows all of that, then it must mean that my choices don't matter. That if God is sovereign like that, then it's, I guess we just sit back and let it ride. Well, that is not how the Bible describes God's sovereignty and man's responsibility to obey him and act. He is 
totally and absolutely sovereign and in control. But God mysteriously works out his sovereignty through our own choices. We see here, he stirred up Cyrus's spirit, but he did not possess Cyrus. Cyrus was not like in Ghostbusters when the, the ghost possessed the people and they, their voice changes and they start speaking weird, weirdly. No, he stirs up his spirit. It's like he changes Cyrus's affections in that moment and, and shows him something that Cyrus actually wants to do. And then Cyrus chooses to obey God. He, he makes Cyrus want to obey him. Even if it was for his own selfish reasons. Maybe it was God who just put into the mind of Cyrus, you know, if you sent all of these nations back to their own homelands and you let them worship their God, they wouldn't just be begrudging, white-knuckled, obedient to you, be, you know, begrudgingly paying their taxes to fund your wars. They would actually be happy with you. They would actually think you're better than Nebuchadnezzar. This would unify your kingdom and enable you to go out and fight these battles. This is a good thing for you, Cyrus. And then Cyrus goes, this is a good thing for me. This makes total sense. Well, interestingly enough, we see God do the same thing with the Jewish exiles who are in Babylon. Can you imagine? 70 years. We don't know how that 70 years actually worked out because right now I think it's around 54 years that they've been in Babylon. So we don't know if God was counting the 70 years from the time that Jeremiah prophesied it or the time that the siege began of Babylon or, or if it was from the moment they got brought into Babylon to the completion of the temple. But it's roughly 70 years in there that there's no singing in Israel. There's no worship. The, the Psalms are not, the, you know, all the Psalms are the Psalms of, of deprecation, right? The Psalms of grieving and mourning. And then all of a sudden you get conquered by another pagan king and here we go again. But in the first year of his reign, he says, oh no, we're going to do what God says. Look at verse five. Then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah. The godly leaders, the godly patriarchs, the godly men who were still hoping for the redemption and restoration of Jerusalem, the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up. See that again? Everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now I want you to feel this here. God's word was declared through Cyrus and the spirit of God stirred up the spirit of the men of God to leave Babylon and go back to rebuild the temple. Now more than likely, Remember, the right worship of God required a lot of sacrifice, it required the temple, required the altar, required a lot of different things that these people did not have. So more than likely, their faith was in the gutter. They, they, weren't, they didn't have a worshiping community. Not only that, but think about what Jerusalem looked like. 
There is no, use our language, there is no church back in Jerusalem waiting for him. There is no temple back there. Nebuchadnezzar utterly destroyed it, annihilated it. The whole, the whole city and the temple and the altar carried, remember, he carried off all the utensils and he brought them to Babylon. This ultimately brought about his own destruction because one night he was partying and he brought out all the temples and they worshiped their pagan gods with the, the utensils of, from, the, from, the old temple, from the old temple. There is no altar back there. There is no worshiping community back there. There are no comfortable jobs back there. Right? Nobody is putting in a transfer to the Jerusalem office. This doesn't make sense. All that remained of Jerusalem was in ruins and rubble. And all that was there, all that was there for the people of God was a whole lot of work to be done. Imagine going through in World War II some of the bombed out cities of Europe. That's what it would have felt like. And this is the third and final thing I want us to see from our text this morning. God was calling faith-filled pioneers here. I know a pioneer goes into a, a land that's not been searched out and not been discovered, but in a sense, this one hadn't been destroyed. So it's very similar. Men who were not afraid of a bit of uncertainty. What's it going to look like? I don't know. How am I going to make a living? What am I going to do? How's it going to work out? Men who were led by faith. Pioneers. Entrepreneurs. Pilgrims. Men who weren't afraid of a whole lot of hard work in their future. Men who were willing to trust God, obey his word, come hell or high water. Now let me try to help us apply these three lessons to our circumstances today. See, our country was greatly influenced by this view of history and a Judeo-Christian worldview. Our concepts of government and law and freedom and liberty have only grown in Western societies that were first predominantly Christian. Most of our society has forgotten that heritage. And we no longer share the same moral compasses, the same understanding of freedom, the same understanding of justice, the same understanding of government and law and liberty and religion and freedom of speech. We could go on, on and on and on. And our country's foundations are right now in ruins and are being pulled down. What are we to do? Well, there's a segment of the population that believes the answer is to put our hope in the next president, governor, councilman, whatever. But that is not what scripture teaches. We, we have this mentality, if we get that guy or that gal elected, he or she will, will change everything. 
Well, hope, hope if we can learn from history, things, are, things get torn down very easily. They don't get rebuilt and restored and fixed very easily. And once you put a person up in that system, it, it tends to corrupt them and it tends, things tend to not get done. Here it is. The change that we want to see requires that normal people, that people, citizens, once again, turn back to Jesus and accept these scriptures as authoritative over all of life. That's what it's going to take. And that cannot be legislated without the will of the people wanting it. What we need is a grassroots movement. What we need now is for God's people here in our city once again to fear him. To fear his judgment. When a nation turns away from the Lord, the Lord will bring his judgment against it. And we are experiencing the judgment of God. What's the answer? Not just a new president. Not just to get the bad ones out of Congress and the Senate. No. We need a grassroots return. The people once again to come back to God's word and say, this is true. And base their life upon it. We must trust his word and obey it in all of life. And live in our day and age like these pioneers. When we look out our door, we should see the ruins. When we go by the courthouse and we see ten remnants of the Ten Commandments graved in the walls, we should think about how far we have fallen. When we read our history books and we see even the Declaration of Independence and even our Constitution, and we see when it says, the year of our Lord. Whoa. I'm watching a new series right now. I can't even remember. I think it's called 1883. It's about, you know, spin off from Yellowstone, but it's, we're on the Oregon Trail right now and we're moving up. Pioneers doing work. And I just keep thinking over and over and over. And they keep bringing this up. There's nothing out there but a whole lot of work. There are no cities. There are no towns. There are no jobs. Just a whole lot of work. And in our mind, our whole educational system in, in America has raised us to look for jobs. And not just to be men and women who work and create. There's always work to be done. But we're so narrowly focused on whatever our expertise is. We just want a job. I'm just keep coming back to this idea. Is when they struck out, the, on, out west on the Oregon Trail, there was nothing out there that was settled. They had no jobs to look forward to. Just a whole lot of work. They had to literally build their homes. They had to create their livelihoods. They had to construct their churches. They had to build their cities. If they didn't like what they saw, 
They weren't expecting anyone else to fix it. They had to get to work. Much of our city, I'm not going to talk about our country anymore (laughs) because I want to focus locally here. County over country. Much of our city and our cities lie in ruin. We know you can just experiment by leaving your car unlocked one night in your driveway. And you're like, the chances this one night something's going to happen, don't try it, okay? I've tried it twice by accident, okay? <laughs> Both times, broken into my truck, stolen stuff. Shame on me, right? There's a lot of, we have a lot, of, we have crime, we have, educa- we have educations in shambles. There's a lot of things in our own city. There's a lot of problems. And God is calling us as Christians, to renew it and restore it. This isn't something that's going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in a couple years. Ours is a long-term vision. It is a multi-generational vision. Many scholars believe the events of Ezra and Nehemiah take place over roughly 100 years. Ezra goes first. Nehemiah comes many years later. Ezra comes in to rebuild and restore the temple and restore the right worship of God and God's people. And then God calls Nehemiah to come in to rebuild the wall around the city and help restore and renew the city itself. This is a multi-generational vision that, require, that will require our kids to understand it. Teenagers in this room, this is something that God's calling you to do. That your education should have a purpose. That you want to be well-rounded and, and well-educated so that you can come back to the city and be a leader, be a pioneer. Be a teacher, be uh, someone in the administration, create your own business, see a need in our city that needs restored and be the man or woman of God to say, you know what, I'm going to do that. Don't just think, I'm going to go get educated in some special specialty and I just want to get a job and make a living. Many times thinking like that is going to bring you somewhere else because you're going to be chasing that higher paycheck and you go, oh, I can go to this city and go to that city. This is going to require our kids and our grandkids to take up the vision with us. And this is what God's calling us. Now, I get excited by that. I get excited by that because I'm going to to speak to the men in here. Men, this society doesn't know what to do with us. And quite frankly, they don't really care about us right now. Right? This is kind of an anti-man society that we're living in right now. And we have no great vision. We have no great purpose. We have no great mission. We're really told just to sit on our hands, be nice, and promote our wives. That's what we're being told. And the church follows suit with that many times and doesn't know what to do with men. Come into the church. What's God want for you? Be nice. That's not a compelling vision, nor is it anywhere in Scripture. (laughs) Right? God is calling pioneers here. 
God is calling daring, masculine men to stand up and follow him and do something that he, he wants to be done. Namely, renew and restore the ruins that are broken around us. And it begins with the house of God. It begins with your own house. Don't fear the word patriarch. Lean into the word patriarch. When our society is wanting to pull down the patriarchy and everything's against the patriarchy, biblical patriarchy is a blessing. When men rightly lead their homes and lead their church and lead their community, the nation goes well. Because godly men, I'm not talking about toxic masculinity, manliness that destroys and manliness that abuses and a manliness that tears down. I'm talking about godly, biblical patriarchy that puts their face like flint. They can go against the wind. They're willing to do hard things. They're not worried about their reputation. They're not worried about what everybody's gonna say to them. They're not worried about being nice guys. They're worried about the truth. They're worried about the word of God and come hell or high water, they're going to obey God and they're gonna protect and love and serve their wives and their families and build their church and work out in the city. Biblical patriarchy, lean into it. I don't, we don't care what the world says about it. This is why our foundations are being ruined, one of the reasons in our society right now. So, men, God's calling us to this kind of compelling vision. Will you be the man? Will you be the man? Will you step up and lean into this? Will you learn? What does it mean to be a godly man? What does it mean to be a godly husband? What does it mean to be a godly leader in my church and community? That's what God is calling us to. The rest of this chapter, I'm not going to go through it verse by verse because I'm already over time. So the rest of this chapter is, guess what? All of the stuff Nebuchadnezzar stole and had hoarded like like a dragon in, in the basement of his temple, Cyrus goes, oh, all of that that Nebuchadnezzar's been sitting on, Take it with you. And just like in the Exodus, the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. Just like in the Exodus, they brought all of those temples and all the gold and all that stuff back with them to Jerusalem. So here we go. This is the beginning of the book of Ezra. The men of God step up, set their face, move forward, walk into the headwind, go point their face back towards a whole lot of hard work, and they're not afraid. They're going to trust God and obey. Are we willing to do the same? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for this Old Testament book. I, thank, I pray that your people, their heart were stirred this morning by your word, the way, the way you've prophesied and the way you brought that prophecy to fulfillment. I pray that we would be men and women who honor you, who aren't afraid of what the world may say about us, who are willing to go into a lot of conflict, a lot of difficulty, because we have hope in your word. Would you help us? renew and restore and rebuild even our church? Would you help us be those type of people that hold you at your word? They believe every word of it and you prove it among us. Would you do this? In your name I pray, amen.